Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of Sharon's very clear and profound vision of the heart-mind path. If you are interested in supporting Sharon's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Sharon. Um, what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to speak some... Uh, Joseph's going to lead us in a guided meditation, and then we're each going to be with you in question and answer and dialogue, and even if you address a question to one of us, it may be that the other one of us chimes in as well. And when uh, Joseph proposed this particular design for the evening, I thought, 
of um, the long, long, long time when we were first teaching together at, you know, 1974, 1975, when uh, we'd each come back from India. And I was too petrified to give a public talk. And if any of you have ever been to one of our retreats, the intensive retreats, which was the only form we were teaching in in those days, you know that the schedule is such that there's um, like guidance and questions and answers in the morning and uh, you basically do your practice throughout the day um, and there's meetings with teachers and things like that but the the big event of the day, aside from the meals, is a, a lecture at night. It's a talk at night. And I couldn't do it. So the first retreat we ever taught in this country uh, was a month-long retreat, and I couldn't give a talk. I couldn't bring myself to do it. I was, I was just too scared. And Joseph had to give all the talks. And uh, uh, quite a number of, of feminists were coming up and yelling at him. <laughs> and uh, saying, why won't you let her give a talk? Why won't you let her have a voice? And he would say, I'd be so delighted if she'd only give a talk. She won't do it. Talk to her. But I couldn't do it. I mean, I was just petrified. And then um, sometime later, and it was quite a few months later, it struck me, you know, I could give this one talk on Meta. M-E-T-T-A, or loving-kindness. Because there is a particular guided meditation for loving-kindness, so if my mind goes completely blank, I can just go into the guided meditation. And maybe no one will notice. And just as an aside, I, not too long ago, I saw Pema Chodron, Ani Pema Chodron, and I told her this story, and she said, oh, the thing that used to really keep me from wanting to give a talk was the fear that my mind would go blank and I would start speaking again, but it would be on a different topic. <laughs> and she said, in all these years, not one person has complained. Like, you gave two talks in one. Or you switched topics all of a sudden. So anyway, back to me. So I thought, you know, I could give a loving kindness talk because I'll just go into the guided meditation and no one will think that was weird or anything. So... At home in Barry, I have piles and piles and piles of cassettes, because they're all tapes, right, in those days, of me basically giving one talk, the only talk I could give, which was on loving kindness. And then one day, it suddenly struck me, wow, they're kind of all loving kindness talks, because that's what it's about. It's just about connecting with people. It's not about really trying to impart your expertise or anything like that. They're all loving-kindness talks. And that was the day I could begin to actually give talks. And it's interesting, this came out, um, some friends after my book, Real Happiness at Work, came out. We were having, a, a, friends gave me this lovely little dinner party, and um, the topic around the table was, what was your happiest moment at work? And I talked about that moment where I kind of, broke through what was really a self-imposed sense of limitation. There was no ultimate reality to it, and I could see through the fear 
into something that would really bring me to a kind of steadiness of, of caring, of, of openness and connection. And so I told that story, and then we went around the table, and Joseph said, when it was Joseph's turn, he said, his happiest moment at work was when I finally started giving talks. <laughs> because he could have a night off. And I thought, oh, here we are. Like, I'm giving the talk. Isn't that interesting? 40 years later. Um, but I think about that kind of moment. We all have those moments, don't we? Where we have a feeling maybe we've existed in a, a dark enclosed room and suddenly the door opens and maybe we don't know really what's outside for sure, but we know it's something bigger. Something maybe we could not even have imagined when we were just within the confines of that other space. Or we have a time when we're kind of lost in our own self-preoccupation. We meet somebody, there's this beautiful quotation uh, in the Chinese tradition, which says, under the cherry blossom shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. And the Dalai Lama himself has said, I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. And you think about that. If you think about how we might more normally meet somebody, and it's like we hardly even notice them. It's really all, what about me? Do you like me? Do you like me more than you've ever liked anybody before? <laughs> oh no, I said something stupid. You hate me. I'm out of here. This is unworkable. And I think one of our great mistaken kinds of conditioning is to confuse self-preoccupation with genuine love for ourselves. And we are so lonely as we don't even notice others. And we just live within the, the confines of this kind of assumption. And then we have these moments for one reason or another where we can let go of that and, and we much more truly connect and it's so beautiful so one of the things I think that actually drew me to exploring the Buddhist tradition the most profound thing was the methodology of meditation for which one clearly you know does not have to uh, become a Buddhist in any way or, or adopt a belief system or um, a dogma but even beyond that, I think one of the things that drew me was this message about the capacity of the human heart, about the potential of a human being. And all the um, descriptions of the Buddha, he's always talked about as having been a human being who had some very human questions about life. Basically, what does it mean to be born in this human body, to be an infant? to be so helpless and so vulnerable to the actions of those around you and to grow up and to get sick, to get older, to die, whether you want that or not. And is there a quality of happiness that can sustain even as the body does its thing? 
outside of our control. And what does it mean to have a human mind with the kind of emotional cascade we go through? So we might wake up in the morning and we're afraid and then we're full of faith and then we're happy and we're sad and round and round without seeming to have the ability successfully to say, I thought about it long, you know, I thought about it really deeply and I'm never going to be afraid again or I've grieved long enough, it's over or I'm never going to fall asleep meditating again. You know, it's not to say we can't affect the conditions that cause something to arise. Clearly we can, but to control them, to insist, to be able to dominate, it's just not going to happen. And so... The question is, is there a quality of happiness? And clearly it needs to be a very special kind of happiness. It's not just having a good time, right? Is there a kind of happiness that can be there, can sustain, that won't be broken as our minds go through all of these changes and our hearts go through all of these changes? So it's said that any answers the Buddha came to, he came to through the power of his own awareness, and so can we, whatever our questions are about the deeper nature of life. We have that capacity. And so it's taught that whatever your personal history, whatever your story, whatever you have gone through, whatever you may yet go through, there is a capacity within everybody that can never, ever be broken. It may be, and it usually is, covered over, and disguised, hard to find, and often very hard to trust. You know, I think those sits are going to be free right up here, so people can just be seated there instead of being squeezed in. Um, and then we have the upper realm up there too, which is kind of interesting. Okay, so, so I found that breathtaking, the thought that if you look deeply enough inside, you would discover this potential this capacity, this ability to understand your life, to have wisdom, to love, to connect, to be free. It's a very different worldview than many, right? Like if you really knew who you were, it would be big trouble. So it's on the basis of that sense of a capacity as an ordinary human being that we practice. Because it makes no sense to think about trying to make something from nothing. I mean, there's futility, right? But it's because it is said we have that potential that we practice, we grow, we change, we transform. And I just felt, what a massively inclusive vision of a human being. It's like you don't have to do preparatory work to have the capacity you don't have to be absolved to have that capacity. You don't have to do something to deserve it that's special. It's simply by existing, no matter who you are, no matter what you may have done. So that was a, a tremendous, tremendous impetus for me and inspiration for me to, to really see what might, might exist there. So the word uh, meditation that we use, of course, so much in uh, the Pali language, language of the original Buddhist text, is bhavana, B-H-A-V-A-N-A, 
And the common translation of it is cultivation. So it's like we cultivate the ground so that the qualities we want, like clarity, awareness, love, can emerge. In uh, Tibetan tradition, there's also there's this really cute phrase that is used sometimes to translate whatever word they have that we usually translate as meditation. Um, and the phrase is getting used to it, getting familiar with it, getting used to it. So, of course, that brings up the question, well, what in the world is it? Letting go of self-imposed limitations, of seeing clearly, of connecting deeply, deeply with others, of seeing the manufactured nature of our fear or our bias, seeing right through it. We've had these moments, each of us, sometimes through tremendous suffering, sometimes through inspiration, through love. However, it's come, but we don't tend to be awfully used to them. We don't tend to live there. So from that definition, from that point of view, we practice meditation to make a home in the deepest places we have already known. It's not so unknown. It's not so kind of impossible to imagine as an experience. It's not so abstract or far away. We've been there, but rather fleeting. Usually we have some kind of important experience like that, and it just comes and it goes and it's gone, and we think... What was that? I don't think I'll tell anyone about that. Or I think I'll tell everyone about that. Or I don't know how to get back there. Right? Somebody told me uh, she, was, she was beginning meditation and she, I think the first sitting, she had some really lovely, peaceful, wonderful experience. And then she had the thought, something like, I think I'm in trouble. And I said, yeah. Because of course she then spent a long time like, how do I get it back? I don't know how to get it back with some ferocity and she suffered. Um, You know, so to learn how to make a home in the deepest places we have already known, that's a pretty beautiful way to think of practice, right? rather than I'm like the worst meditator that ever lived and I can barely believe I will ever, ever, ever have a single moment of anything resembling mindfulness, whatever that means. Um, so it's a very different kind of uh, feeling tone and, and sense of joy and exploration and confidence and as, as we go forward. Um, I think of meditation practice largely as a kind of skills training. And it's a training in... Um, I, once, I once landed in London and went right to see a friend in a theater. And to get to the bathroom or to leave, which I desperately need to do because I was falling asleep, you had to sort of go all the way down the aisle, practically onto the stage, and then leave, which was... Uh, really hard to hang in there till intermission so bravo all you people going to the bathroom um, so uh, I largely think of meditation as a skills training 
it's almost like the skills we need to come home, to abide in those places. So it really doesn't have to be tied to a belief system or a particular uh, kind of language or, or way of being, but uh, we do need to have some trust in, I mean, a little bit of trust in the capacity of our own being. Even as we get frustrated or, or dismayed or, or feel like nothing is happening. Um, and over 45 years, I feel like I've been through a lot of those periods. My very, very favorite story, which maybe I'll close with so just we can lead us into meditation, um, about IMS in a way, and of course there are many, and this is like nostalgia time. So we're just telling stories. You remember when we first moved in and... There were pews everywhere. And remember when, you know, there was no art. And remember when, instead of saying meta, M-E-T-T-A, above the doorway, it said Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, which it did. Um, so but, well, one of my favorite amongst the many stories is... Um, within the first month, we received two letters that were remarkable for how they were addressed. The first, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. (laughs) And I loved that. You know, I thought, wow, isn't that typical of what we think, that we need instant gratification. It has to happen right away or it's worthless. And the second, which is so much my favorite, uh, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. Um, I love that. And everyone here from IMS, and there are a few people here know that, um, knows that, you know, every kind of big anniversary season, if we talk about like T-shirts and mugs and things like that, I always put in a plug for the Hindsight Meditation Society, which no one has wanted to do. I don't even know if, are we having t-shirts this year? We are. Oh, I was told no. See, they try to keep things from me. So, oh, okay. Just so you know, I really like the Hindsight Meditation Society. Because I really feel, you know, sincerely, like I have put in so many hours practicing. So, so many hours in my own spiritual life, feeling nothing was happening. Only for me to look back later in hindsight and say, look at that. Something was happening. Or even, that really hurt. But that, in a way I could never have imagined, was kind of preparing me for what came next. And so many times in my life of trying to make a difference or be of service in the world where I felt like, this is going nowhere. Only when I'm lucky, I feel like I can look back and say, look at that. That actually planted a seed. At the time, I never could have told it was having a result, but look at that it really did set something in motion that maybe took a longer time or took a different direction somewhat than I had imagined. But if I had not done that, maybe nothing would have come to pass. So 
uh, I think that the Hindsight Meditation Society really is, is a tremendous sign of wisdom. And it's so funny because in the 40 years since then, since we opened, we've only, as far as I know, maybe it's because nobody does letters anymore, but as far as I know, we've only gotten one envelope that had kind of a weird address on it, which was instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, like Insight Revolution or Insight something. So that was kind of fun. But I think with the wisdom of the Hindsight Meditation Society and some kind of faith or, or a sense of trust in that capacity that we really have have the possibility of really a lifetime of a, a path. So I hope all questions have dissolved into that open, empty space. But if any are still remaining, <laughs> Sharon and I would be glad to. Uh, there's going to be a mic that's coming to you, I think. Thank you. So is there a difference between consciousness and awareness? And if, if you are ever fortunate enough to be in either of those states, are you aware or conscious that you're conscious or aware? <laughs> Sharon? Yeah. <laughs> I gave you a talk. You're going to answer the question? You have to repeat the question. The question was, is there a difference between awareness and consciousness? And if you're fortunate enough to be in either one of them, do you know you're aware or conscious? Is that basically? Yeah. So one of the problems in talking about this is that in English, uh, the English words are not as precise as the words, for example, in the Buddhist texts of the Pali language or perhaps Sanskrit or Tibetan. We use the word awareness in English and consciousness to cover a wide range of meanings, and that's why it can get confusing. Generally, we talk of consciousness as, as the bare knowing faculty, just knowing a sight, a sound, a smell, there need not be any particular mindfulness associated with that. So the example I use, for example, uh, I talk about black lab consciousness. So you know the dogs, the black lab, the fun dogs, you know, and the playful. And Well, when you watch them, they're conscious. They're not unconscious. They're conscious of the smells and the sights and the sounds. They don't look very mindful. <laughs> You know, this is, so there's not awareness in the sense of mindfulness. Right? But if you're using awareness to mean are they conscious, yes, they're conscious. But without that component of mindfulness, which we usually uh, include when we use the word awareness. So in that sense, in that specific sense, those two are different. It's very possible to be in that black lab consciousness and not know. 
it's, it's, it really can be a completely deluded state where we're just caught up in what's happening. When there's mindfulness or awareness associated with the consciousness, then we are knowing that we're aware. So I hope that helped to clarify a little bit. It can be confusing because the words in English, as I say, cover a wide range of different meanings. Just bring your microphone. Just bring your microphone. Okay, I'm going to be greedy and have two questions. Um, one, I'm kind of new to this, so is there a difference between insight meditation, transcendental, transcendental meditation, and any other kind of meditation? Uh, is that one of two? No, that's one. Well, that's one, okay. <laughs> so the first question was, uh, is there a difference between insight meditation, transcendental meditation, and any other kind of meditation? Um, from the point of view of insight meditation, they'd say yes. Uh, in that, you, uh, even within insight meditation, it's a kind of a larger category, you might devote time to most particularly deepening the uh, quality of concentration. That's a kind of stability of attention and steadiness of attention. And classically, that's done by choosing an object of awareness, resting our attention on that object, and coming back the 70 billion times per session that our attention wanders. So the um, uh, transformational moment in that type of technique is letting go of whatever is not that object. It could be the most beautiful thought in the world, the most dreadful thought, thought in the world, it's just not that object, right? So you just let go and come back and let go and come back. So over time, you build this kind of strength and steadiness and uh, centeredness of mind and some extraordinary access to much deeper states of consciousness because you've gathered a lot of energy that is normally wasted. So what that central object is could be anything. So even within, say, Buddhist teaching, could be a mantra, could be a sound, could be an image, could be something happening in your body, could be a prayer, could be loving kindness. Uh, very commonly, at least for part of your practice, that object, that centering object will be the breath. Um, for a number of reasons. As my early teachers would say, first of all, you don't have to believe anything in order to feel your breath. You don't have to call yourself a Buddhist or Hindu or reject anything else. If you're breathing, you can be meditating. And then as one said, I always felt very charmingly, he said, the breath is very portable. You know, so if you <laughs> practice, say, 10 minutes a day in a formal, dedicated way, using the breath as the means to get back to yourself and back to the moment, then you're at work. And it's crazy. And the pressure's on, and people are getting anxious, and it's just this frantic pace. You don't have to, like open up the closet door and pull out all this equipment and sit down and cross like it and look weird, right, with your gong and everything. You know, it's like you're breathing. Nobody even has to know you're doing it, right? But So all of that would fall into, from the point of view of, of Buddhist teaching or insight meditation, all that falls under concentration. Then uh, there are ways of practicing where uh, we build on that concentration so that we then apply a quality of 
open awareness or non, uh, it's kind of awareness without a lot of filters, holding on, pushing away, stuff like that, to what's happening in our body. So it's not just one object anymore. You know, it's the body, it's emotions, it's thoughts, it's whatever arises, and until it becomes a way of uh, having a different kind of awareness of everything that happens for us. And the muscle of that, the engine of that kind of practice is mindfulness. So, you know, any mindfulness practice ultimately is supposed to be about insight. So it's not just about collecting that energy, but utilizing that collected energy as a way of seeing more clearly everything we're going through. So from that point of view, that's the distinction they would make. So when you speak of an object, you are not speaking of gazing at a candle or an apple or... It, it could be that. It could be. It could be any object. Yes. Okay. Second question is, could you please address the idea of chronic pain and how debilitating that is and how to kind of use mindfulness to get around it? All right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be, that would be an example of, um, the question was about chronic pain and how debilitating it can be and using mindfulness as a way of getting around it. I mean, that would be an example of uh, paying attention to something other than just the breath or something, uh, you know, but using that kind of awareness towards something that's very compelling, that's really capturing your attention. So the first thing we say, well, the first thing I would say is that it's not easy, you know, so I think that's a given, and you have to be kind of forgiving for, towards yourself and not have the instant mindset, you know, uh, going much, because it's not easy, but it's possible to make a difference. Um, even research is showing that um, there was an experiment that was done in Richie Davidson's lab in Madison, Wisconsin, where um, somehow he got permission to induce pain, physical pain in people. And we also use physical pain as a kind of template to more deeply understand emotional pain and heartache and so on. But he got permission to induce physical pain in people, and he had a group of meditators and a group of non-meditators. And what he found was that the meditators and the non-meditators pretty well responded the same way to pain. But as soon as the pain was withdrawn, the non-meditators would tend to flip into a cycle of anticipation. When's it coming back? How bad is it going to be? You know, maybe it'll be even worse. So whatever got like heightened and whatever in their brains, because they were in fMRIs, uh, never receded. So there was never a period of repose, right? Whereas the meditators would have whatever reaction to pain because we're human beings and it hurts. And then the pain went away, they could let go and be with what was. So I thought that was so interesting. Um, both in what we can expect of ourselves and not having unreasonable expectations, but also it's not so much the pain, it's the extra pain. Like, what might we be doing just through force of habit that's making it actually worse? Anticipating the future, feeling isolated, blaming ourselves, feeling ashamed, and whatever it might be that we add on. So the first thing we say in mindfulness practice really is look for the add-ons. You know, what might 
and again, it's just habit. It's not because they're a bad person or something, you know, but just through force of habit, we tend to add on a lot of stuff, right? So that's the first place. And then that gives us some room to look more directly at the pain. And what we see, and this is true for any experience, is that it's not just one thing. It's, in that case, maybe it's moments of pressure and moments of burning and moments of twisting. None of that sounds good and none of that feels good, but that's an alive system, right? There's movement in there. It's not like this solid, congealed, overwhelming, oppressive thing that never moves. It's alive. And uh, like a, a friend of mine with a very severe chronic pain condition said, uh, I found this space within the pain, right? But we can only do that when we're with it without adding all that stuff to it. So that's, that's basically what we do. I'll just add one little piece to that, which ties into the meditation we did, that one of the ways that we do solidify our sense of the experience is through overlaying the pain with a concept my head, my shoulder, my back. But actually, there's no sensation called back. There's no sensation called head. So we're not actually feeling back or feeling head. As Sharon just said, we're feeling pressure or tightness or stabbing, whatever it is. When we go from the level of the concept overlay to the direct experience, that allows us then to, to experience the pain in, in just the way Sharon expresses, an alive, dynamic system. So, but we're, we're so conditioned to think in terms of the concept of our body, you know, and then that solidifies uh, our relationship to it. Hi, thank you so much. I'm not sure how to form the question, but the guided meditation we did, I've never done anything like that, and it kind of blew my mind, so I just, I thought that, that the first person this would talk about it. Um, I, I'm not sure if the experience that I was having was, I mean, I'm not sure, that I, there's not a right or wrong, but um, I just wanted to ask, uh, I didn't know if I was kind of going on a magical mystery ride, <laughs> if I was like, um, but that was really, I mean, your voice was amazing and like just what you were saying over and over and there's no shape and there's no boundaries and no body, I mean, I was there, and when you said, now look at your actual mind, I, I, you know, I, <laughs> it was white, snowy, and a little gray. I mean, I, what were we doing? I, I was, I was, I was, I didn't know, I mean, there were like no thoughts except one creeped in, and it was like, is this like a college hash or acid flashback? <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but, and, and I, I went back to my breath a little to, to like, I, I, so I just wondered, 
Could you say something about it? <laughs> <laughs> this is a little hard to repeat. <laughs> but it was about her experience of the guided meditation and feeling a little bit like it was a magical mystery tour of something or other and not even quite sure what, but that there was some sense of boundaries dissolving and the space of mind being empty. And uh, So all of that sounds great. Um, I guess there are a couple of a couple of key points about meditation in general, about experiences like this or other kinds of meditative experiences. Um, and Sharon did refer to this. Um, we'll have all kinds of experiences, you know, in practice, and different forms of practice may lead us to different uh, places in ourselves. So the important thing is uh, to be open to all this and to be using these different methods, but without clinging to any of it. Without clinging to any of it. Because the real essence of freedom, the very bottom line of any practice leading to liberation, is cultivating in one way or another the mind that does not cling. And there, there are some famous you know, Buddhist discourses where it says, develop a mind which does not cling to anything. And so I think it's really important to understand that because it is so easy, especially as we have different experiences like you describe and many, many others, it becomes very easy to become fascinated with experience. And we either then try to recreate it, we miss the point that really what we're practicing is the mind that's not holding on. So we want to remind ourselves again and again, even as we're having different experiences, that's what the essence is. The essence of the free mind. I felt like you were a great guide. You know, I, th there was a, a gentleman here who had his hand up. Your many years of practice must have led you to develop uh, cities or telepathic powers because I think you just anything in life. What is the most important thing? In life. In life. <laughs> Sharon? <laughs> it's your turn. <laughs> well, he said you answered already, no, so I would say not clinging. <laughs> Somebody behind me just said in wife. No, not wife, life. But you, you said that the question was, well, first it was, it was um, something about Joseph has already answered the question before it was asked, and then what is the most important thing in life? So I'm taking my clue from the fact that Joseph had answered the question 
before it was asked. So then I said, say not clinging, <laughs> which is what you said before. Okay, fine. You know, it's just maybe to, to uh, open the conversation a bit. Uh, I'm sure most of you know uh, who Ramdas is. You know, and he was great. He's a great friend, and we knew each other from years ago in the early days in India. And I just saw him uh, last uh, December. In he's living in Maui now, uh, and as many of you probably know, years ago he had a stroke, and it's, it's quite quite powerful. But he's in this amazing space, you know, of love and openness and open heartedness and. And so uh, some friends had, had wanted to, wanted to um, film a conversation between Ramdas and myself. <laughs> and we're, we're old, old friends for many, many years. Uh, so they set up and we're sitting uh, together and we're having this conversation. And of course he comes from the bhakti tradition, the Hindu bhakti tradition. And so for him the most important thing in life is love. And it's, it's really the language of love. So we got into this conversation, which we've been having now for 40 years, you know, and it was really quite fun. Uh, and I was talking about a, uh, a time after a Buddhist Christian conference that I had gone to, and along with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and some Benedictine uh, monks at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky. And after the conference, uh, there were people involved in the Benedictine community who wanted a Buddhist commentary on the rule of St. Benedict. You know, and so there's an actual book came out of it called Benedict's Dharma. And so there were four of us, four Buddhists, who went through the rule, you know, and were giving a Buddhist take on it. So in the conversations that we were having about that, and as some of the Benedictine monks, and maybe some of you know Father, uh, Brother David Sendel Rost, who's written beautifully about gratitude and devotion and love. As he was talking, I had a kind of, uh, I don't know, it was a little bit of an epiphany of realizing that from one perspective, the words emptiness and love mean the same thing. You know, that Buddhists use the word emptiness a lot. In devotional practices, use the word love a lot. But when you look at the experience, it actually both has to do, both have to do with, you could say, emptiness of self or selflessness or non-separation. If there's no self, there's no other. And so what is love other than that? You know, and so when you ask what is the most important thing in life, I think there are many ways and many vocabularies to describe it, and people will find the language that inspires themselves. So for some people it might be the language of love, or the language of peace, or the language of freedom, or the language of emptiness. But it's really important to go beyond the words and say, okay, well, what's, what's the realization that it's, that's informing those words? 
Actually, your, your question made me think of a story I sometimes tell about you uh, without ever mentioning your name, which I still won't. Uh, but it's, I wrote a book called Faith. Um, it came out quite a number of years ago. And uh, in the book, I tell this story about sitting with a group of people, including um, a psychiatrist in New York City. And we were having a discussion. And from a certain vantage point, looking from the, you know, the hindsight meditation society point of view, it, it was sort of a, a reductionistic conversation because the topic was what's the single most um, healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship, as though there were just one. But anyway, a nameless psychiatrist in New York City and a group of us were having this conversation and he said, it's love. He said, if you put, the way it was phrased, if you put any good psychotherapist up against the wall, they'd say it was love. It's the love in the room. That's the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship. And I had one of these experiences where, you know, you just hear these words come out of your mouth. And what I heard come out of my mouth was, was for all we know, the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship is the fact that someone shows up for their appointment. <laughs> and I meant it, you know, because I was writing a book on faith, and in a way, that's how I was defining faith. Like, what gets us out of bed in the morning and has us willing to try and take some risks and believe in the possibility of change? It's easier to stay in bed than show up for that appointment, right? Um, so I put that story in the book, and then the book came out on one of my birthdays and I was doing a reading and um, seeing that he was there, his nameless psychiatrist friend was there in the room, I read that story uh, in his honor and then uh, he came up um, to me to get a book signed and he said, I think you're wrong. <laughs> he said, I don't think it's faith, I think it's love. So in big letters, I put, it's love, right? So then a, a good friend, who's also here in the room, gave me a birthday party um, after the book reading. So we're all at the birthday party, and he came back up to me, and he said, you know, I think you were right. I think it is fate. So I said, give me back the book. I'll resign it, you know? So words are tricky, and it's not just one thing, but... Uh, there's something to it, I think, both, obviously, to the love, which is um, this extraordinary ingredient in any, any form of connection, and also to our willingness to be there. So maybe I would even say something about that in what life is about. You know, it's not just standing on the sidelines, but it's kind of like going forward. Are there any questions from people up Oh, there? yeah. The upper rounds. <coughs> Someone's going to come up with a microphone, I think. Is it... Why don't you go upstairs and see what happens? Well, while we're waiting, is anybody down here? He's right behind you. 
I have a question about um, panic attacks. Um, I'm interested to know exactly what happens when you're having a panic attack and what you can do during the course of that panic attack and if you have any identification, if that maybe has happened to you at some early stage and how you may, uh, either one of you may have been able to kind of practice these principles to learn to deal with them. I don't really have a lot of... I have to repeat the question. Uh, so the question was about panic attacks and basically working with them, whether there are tools to work with them in the practice and whether we've had any kind of personal experience of working with it. Uh, so I haven't that... Uh, I've worked a lot in my practice with fear as a very primal emotion and very deep, but that's different than kind of the intensity, the trigger of a panic attack. Uh, and so what I'm going to say is very general, um, and maybe there'll be something useful in it or not, but there's probably a lot, there's probably a very big body of knowledge about it, which I don't have. Um, but in a general sort of way, two things come to mind. One is one of the principles in meditation practice and one of one of the reasons it's called practice is that we gradually uh, expand our ability to be with very unpleasant experiences. Because the usual conditioning with something that's very unpleasant, so it could be pain, physical pain, it could be a strong emotion like fear, and, which I work with a lot, it could be rage, it could be panic. So there, there's a lot of both emotional and energetic things which can be very intense and very unpleasant. What happens over the course of practice is that we develop a capacity to hold that energy, to hold more of that energy without the reactivity to it. You know, so it's okay, this is really intense, this is really painful, it's okay. It's okay, just, just let me feel it, just let me feel it. Now there will be a, we all will come to our limits or boundaries of what we can hold. Over time though, and with practice, what I've experienced is that that capacity to hold what can be very intense and painful, the capacity gets larger. And so I would say in terms of a practice, taking it in very small chunks, right? when a panic attack happens, even if it's for a few minutes at the beginning, you know, to see if you can remind, okay, just let me feel it, just let me feel it, just let me be with it. You know, and then maybe after a few minutes you get caught up in it. 
But practicing in that way, you might find that you develop that ability over time to hold it because it too, as you well know, is not permanent. It's there when the conditions trigger it and at a certain point it goes away. And so we, we just, the practice itself develops that strength of mind over time in a gradual way. So that's one general principle of what happens with meditation and it would be worth experimenting, as I say, even if it's just for minutes at a time to begin with. The second thing which you've probably explored already, but with difficult emotions, one of the things that I find very interesting in meditation practice and in life is to see very precise, as precisely as we can, what triggers the particular response, what triggers the emotion, what triggers the anger, what triggers the anguish, what triggers the panic. Very often these things happen so quickly and then we're lost in whatever the reactivity is. Just one, one brief story which may relate in some way. This goes back years. I was on retreat, I was on a long retreat. I had done something during the retreat that was very damaging to my body. And it, it, it was a mess. And for about six weeks, I was just, it, it, was, it was a retreat about anguish. I was just in a state of anguish about all this. And what was feeding it was just this thought that kept coming to my mind. How could I have been so stupid to have done this thing voluntarily, which had such disastrous consequences for the body? That thought, how could I have been so stupid, was so seductive. As soon as that thought came, Half an hour later, I was crawling out of the story of it, you know, filled with this emotion of anguish. And this was going on for weeks and weeks at a time. Until finally, it's like, okay, how am I getting so caught in this? And I realized that I needed to be absolutely on top of that trigger point. If I missed the first word of it, I was gone because it was so seductive and so believable. So I just, I set the radar out for that thought. It's like, how could I have been so stupid? Not even how. <laughs> just, <laughs> as soon as how came into mind. <laughs> I just didn't give it a moment's airtime. It took that vigilance, but at least in that situation, it was very effective you know, because it no longer triggered that whole emotional reaction. So that's just another element of how we can explore our minds when we get seduced again and again by a particular trigger point. 
Now, panic may be more complicated than that. You know, there's a lot of energetic stuff going on. But it's just an example of, you know, some, some possibilities of ways of working. There's somebody up there, oh, actually. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hi. Hi, thanks very much. So one of the uh, issues that I have with Buddhism, and I'm just wondering if you guys could uh, comment on it, is the difference between what I would call like practical advice, practical guidance, such as non-attachment, impermanence, you know, great stuff, who can argue with that, versus dogma, let's say, and what comes to mind is uh, rebirth, enlightenment, which, you know, arguably is just a story that can't really be proved. So I just wondered if you guys have grappled with that, and if so, you know, what, how, have you, how have you done it, and what conclusions have you come to? Um, the question was about uh, grappling with different aspects of Buddhist teaching. One is, seems very practical, like impermanence, non-attachment, and the other seems more like dogma, like rebirth and enlightenment, although I would, we could have an interesting conversation about the latter and, you know, uh, how theoretical and how realistic it is, but um, sort of having that kind of split uh, or feeling that kind of split and what's been our experience. So, um, you know, I went to India in 1970 and I was uh, very much in search of a very, very practical approach. I really want to learn some methods for being a happier person and uh, I finally found that in the context of this intensive 10-day retreat. So um, the teacher was S.N. Goenka and the first night of that retreat, so this is like really my introduction. You know, I, I mean I'd read some books and stuff in college but uh, this was really like my heartfelt introduction. Um, almost the first thing he said was the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. Um, and so that was the foundation of my understanding from the get-go, you know. And uh, there was so much emphasis within that particular tradition or that, those particular lineages of Burmese um, teaching that, uh, you know, of all the sayings of the Buddha, they would pick out the Kalama Sutta, you know, don't believe anything just because... Uh, I've said it because a great elder has said it because you've read it in a sacred text. Put it into practice. See for yourself what's true. That it was almost like the that was like almost like the ethical ground. So questioning was important. Uh, the most important thing was putting it into practice. If you had the kind of cynicism so that you didn't want to bother doing that, you know that was a different kind of doubt because um, that was just holding you back, right? But. Uh, just put it into practice. See for yourself if it's useful, what's true, and so on. Uh, but within the context, definitely there was a cosmology. And there was an approach that included rebirth and uh, karma and many realms of existence. And uh, we had one teacher, um, this teacher named Menindra, um, who, and this would sort of describe the environment in which we were being nurtured and and helped along. He'd, you know, somebody would ask a question about 
rebirth into other realms of existence. And he'd say, you don't have to believe it. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. <laughs> you know, so I personally have not felt a sense of grappling or, or trying to put two disparate things together. I never ever felt it was expected of me that I had to buy into some system um, that didn't make sense to me. On the other hand, it kind of does make sense to me, you know, but that's especially enlightenment, but um, it doesn't matter. You know, and if they told me it didn't matter, something wasn't going to make it matter. Uh, and that I think we can tell within ourselves uh, that kind of healthy questioning is different than the kind of doubt that has us stand back and sort of say, I don't know about that, you know, it's like so old-fashioned or, you know, uh, how could it be relevant or whatever, you know, which uh, is really much more like cynicism, I think, than questioning. Just add some two cents. Uh, so two things. One, there's, there's a very nice phrase uh, by the poet Col Coleridge, I believe, who talked about the willing suspension of disbelief. And I think it's a very useful idea in dealing with things that are beyond what we may currently understand. And to just acknowledge that there's a lot of mysteries about a lot of things. And just as there can be attachment to a belief, there can be attachment to disbelief. And what I found so helpful is just, this, is, this has become a very favorite mantra of mine with questions like this. Who knows? <laughs> but but it, it's not a who knows of confusion. It's a who knows of openness. It's like, who knows? You know, certainly there are a lot of great beings who teach this and believe in it and but it's not something that I've experienced for myself so who knows <laughs> yeah, and, and that openness just is a very uh, easeful way you know of engaging with new ideas or different ideas or things that seem strange without either attachment to believing them or attachment to disbelieving them. Okay. Um, so I'm a pretty... Uh, I'm a, Why don't you stand up, please? Okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so I'm a beginner, right? I, it's probably like my first, like, big group meditation. And so I was telling my coworkers, like, oh, like... I can't go out, you know, where I'm going to this meditation thing. And so I work, I work at a law firm, and it's very competitive. And they had all kind of just, like, implicitly assumed, like, I was doing it to get ahead or that there was some sort of advantage I would get out of it. And so I was like... There is. <laughs> right, but my, my point is, is that I was thinking about it on the way up here, and I'm like, well, shit, why, why am I coming here? And I guess we, t we talk a lot about intentions, right? And I think it, it felt to me shallow be, be, to come here and be like, well, 
you know, I can get ahead at work, or I can get ahead and, you know, I can understand, you know, my relationships better, or whatever. So I guess, what is a good intention to come to meditation with? Well, we can each... Uh... Oh, so the, the question was, uh, he's new to this, this is his first kind of big group meditation, he works in a law firm, very competitive, so wondering about the, mo the motivation even for coming here, you know, and is it just kind of to get, uh, to get a certain edge, you know, and to get ahead, and it's... so the question is, you know, what about motivation in undertaking a practice, you know, undertaking even an interest in it? First, I think it's really important to uh, realize that uh, our motivations change, you know, and we may start with one motivation, and maybe the motivation, you know, is not 100% pure. <laughs> you know, there, there might be, you know, ambition or, you know, how is this going to help me, you know, get ahead in the office or whatever it is, which is... Not necessarily a bad motivation anyway. But as we get into the practice and we understand the nature of just our whole, our mind, our body, our lives, and we become more attuned actually to the, med to the motivations that are running our lives, that awareness itself, that growing awareness of our motivations, uh, enables us then to begin to make some choices. Oh, this, this feels like a good thing to do. This, this is not. But the motivation will change as that understanding grows. So I'll just tell one little motivation story. It's a Sharon story. Mm. So I was on retreat. First, just so you know that for meditation teachers, a good story is gold. We're like, we're like story vultures, you know, and, and as soon as we hear a story, that's mine. <laughs> so I was on retreat and I was reading some Buddhist texts and I came across something and there was a good story in it. And I thought Sharon was writing one of her books at that time, one of her many books. And I thought, oh, that would be a great story for Sharon's book. That was the first thought. And the second thought was, no, I'm going to keep this story for myself. <laughs> and then the third thought was, no, that's just being selfish. I'm, I'm, I'll share the story with her. But I'm going to tell her what I'm going through so she feels a little indebted. <laughs> and so my mind just went through this whole... So finally, at a certain point, I asked... Basically, the question you're at, well, where's the purity of the motivation in all this? You know, because I saw so many, so many different motivations. And I realized that there was a pure motivation, and it was in the very first thought. So even though all those other thoughts followed, because fortunately I was mindful enough to see them and to watch them, I could just see them run through my mind ask myself the question, okay, well, where was that moment of pure mode? Oh, it was in the f first thought. Then I could go back and, you know, offer the story to Sharon from that place. Uh, the P.S. to the story, she didn't even think it was a great story. <laughs> so, 
I think it's really, really important to know that unless you happen to be a saint, very often we have mixed motives. You know, and the more aware we become, the more aware we are of those mixed motives. And through that awareness, we can actually then begin to make some more skillful choices. So I'd say whatever brings you to the practice, whatever it is, is fine. And then watch how the motivations evolve from that. I was also highly amused. I think uh, I agree with everything Joseph said, and it is true. I believe that through meditation, one has kind of greater acuity of perception, more perspective taking, and um, an ability to not get so distracted, and, and uh, all the things that might help you get ahead in your work. But I was just so highly amused that uh, these days, people think about meditation as a tool to get ahead. Whereas in my day, you know, like when I was a young meditator, it was like, that's like navel gazing, you know, like that's like the laziest thing you could do. That's like perpetual vacation. You know, you're going to end up being like a doormat. So I think we've actually made some progress in its own way. <laughs>